as we are here. <laughs> there we go. All right. Hey, well, let's start over. How about that? Good morning. It's great to see everybody today. Uh, so glad, as always, that you're here. Uh, we are in week three of our brand new series called The Gospel of God, where uh, we are studying Paul's letter uh, to the Christ followers in Rome. And we're going to be looking at chapter one, verses eight through 17 today. And so if you'll get uh, your Bibles open there or turn your Bibles on to that place, let's read uh, the word of God together. This is what Paul writes, beginning in verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, Amen. Well, today's message is titled, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. And uh, we just live in a day, I think you recognize this, when it's very easy, very easy to struggle with being ashamed of the gospel. Maybe you would say this is your own personal testimony in some ways. Maybe you struggle at times. You kind of feel embarrassed about some of Christianity's theological claims. I mean, just think about it. We believe that a man, a man named Jesus, is the eternal son of God who became a human being. We believe that this man lived a sinless life and then he died on a cross and somehow in dying he paid for the whole world's salvation. And then we believe that God raised him from the dead, that he then uh, ascended to heaven where he is now reigning over all things at God's right hand. And we also believe that one day this man who's the son of God, he is gonna come back and split the eastern sky and he is gonna come back apparently on a horse. Kinda sounds a little crazy when you say it out loud, right? So maybe, maybe you kinda wonder sometimes about some things like that. Maybe some of you wrestle with feeling ashamed uh, about what the Bible teaches, how, how we should live, particularly in the 21st century in regards to sexuality. Later on in Romans 1, we're gonna be studying some teaching from the Apostle Paul that a lot of people today just simply straight out label as hate speech. We are often called these days as Christians hateful, uh, repressive, backwards, ignorant, 
If you're on social media, you regularly see people calling out Christians uh, for bad behavior. Sometimes it's pretty embarrassing, and maybe you feel ashamed that, that people who say they follow Jesus, they do things, they say things that don't really seem to reflect who Jesus is. It can be easy today to feel ashamed. In the last couple of decades, our culture has grown increasingly hostile to Christianity. Richard Dawkins' New York Times best-selling book, The God Delusion, just reflects what many people think, that God is a delusion and that religion is harmful and destructive and really should not be tolerated. That's what he claims. Or maybe you saw a few years ago the documentary that Bill Maher put out called Religulous, which just called Christianity ridiculous. And then more and more today, it's just everywhere. It's in movies, it's in popular music, it's, it's through social media influencers. Christians are portrayed as judgmental, bigoted, sexually repressive people who are on the wrong side of history. See, a lot of people today say we should be ashamed of the gospel. And so some who have named the name of Jesus find themselves drifting away or sometimes adopting more progressive and culturally palatable forms of faith. And some are just rejecting Christianity altogether. So maybe you're here today and maybe you're in a place where you wonder, should I be ashamed? Should I believe what I believe? What if it's not true? Or what if I, I need to set aside some things that I've already believed? What if I need to deconstruct my faith? Maybe you've heard of people who have deconstructed their faith. Sometimes this is about people just uh, throwing off some non-biblical baggage that they were taught as a child in certain churches, and that's not really a bad thing, but, but some people are deconstructing by rejecting central biblical teaching. Some people are rejecting Christian faith altogether. All Honestly, I mean, we should admit that there are some expressions of Christianity that do need to be deconstructed because there are some, we could admit this, who name the name of Christ, who do not accurately reflect who Jesus is or or what Jesus teaches. But I want to say today, in the light of all of this, the, the answer is not less Christianity. The answer is not like some upgraded, more progressive mode of Christianity. The answer is a deeper Christianity, a truer Christianity, actually an older, ancient Christianity, what was actually taught in the Bible, and actually what we're going to see all through this book of Romans, what true faith in Jesus really is. You know, one of the things I think that is fascinating about today's passage, what we've just read, is to realize that disdain for Christianity and the, the ridicule and the marginalization of Christians is not a new thing. Paul faced it in his day. Maybe you have read 1 Corinthians in the first chapter where Paul talks about how the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. See, the Greeks, they saw themselves as intellectuals just like certain people today, and when they heard the gospel, it sounded absurd, foolishness. They laughed at Christian morals. I mean, really, if you think that we are a sexually liberated society, you should go back and read the history 
and see how the ancient Greeks and Romans lived. See, Paul said the Greeks saw it as foolishness, but he also said in 1 Corinthians that Christianity was offensive to the Jews, in other words, to the religious people, because Jewish people thought that a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. You know, Messiahs don't die. Messiahs conquer and rule and reign. So Christianity was offensive, and it just reminds us that from the beginning, it's always been this way, it always will be this way. Christianity has been mocked, and laughed at and called evil. It's behind why the Apostle Paul in his life was beaten and, and stoned with, with rocks, not like that. Um, why Paul was left for dead more than once. See, Paul knew how hard it, it was and still is to openly admit that you're a Christ follower and then to try to persuade other people what you believe. So, when Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he didn't say that because it was easy to follow Jesus back then. I mean, I'll just ask you so you can see this clearly. Anybody here just want to check? Anybody here ever been beaten or stoned for their faith? Probably not, right? And yet that was Paul's experience. In almost every way, it was harder for Paul to follow Jesus than for us. And yet, the apostle, he was not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of Jesus, of what, of what Jesus taught, of how Jesus said his followers ought to live. In fact, it was just the opposite. Paul said, and he's saying here in this passage, I am confident in it, I am convinced of it, and I openly confess it without fear, without shame. In fact, it's the opposite. If you go to verse 15, did you notice Paul said, I am eager to preach the gospel. To you also who are in Rome. It's, it, it, Paul wants to preach the gospel. He's so far from being ashamed that he wants to go to Rome. In other words, not going out like to the country to some uh, people who don't really know anything supposedly, to, to powerless, uneducated people who might be gullible uh, as the accusations sometimes go. Paul says, I want to go right to the heart of the Roman Empire. I want to go to the capital of the world, to the center of politics and commerce and art. I want to go right to the seats of power and there proclaim the good news, the gospel. He says, I want to preach it there because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, here's the historical reality. Paul is going to eventually lose his head for this gospel. So here's the question that I want to put before us today as we study our way deeper into this letter. How can you and I live our lives with the same kind of confidence in the gospel of Jesus? How can we live not ashamed of the gospel? And this really matters. If you, if you think this is kind of a side issue, you should be reminded of what something Jesus said. Jesus warned us about being ashamed of him. One time Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me in this life, I will be ashamed of you in the world to come as you stand before the Father in his judgment seat. If you do not confess me before men here, I will not confess you before my Father there. And so this matters. It's important that we settle this in our lives and we keep settling it all our lives. You, you really honestly should pray every day if you've never prayed something like this. Lord, thank you, thank you for your gospel. Help me today to be unashamed. 
You should pray that. You should pray, I don't want to be ashamed of Jesus or his gospel. I don't want to be ashamed, Father, about what the gospel teaches or how the gospel tells me to live. I want to live my life not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul is so passionate about this gospel. Did you hear it? Did you feel it when we were reading these verses? In verse 9, he, he says, I serve God with my spirit in this gospel. And, and that phrase, with my spirit, means like everything I have, everything I am, I am all in. I serve the Lord, the gospel, with the deepest part of who I am. I am wholeheartedly devoted to serving God, and I'm going to do that by holding fast to the gospel and by preaching it. And so therefore, I'm eager, Paul says. I'm not ashamed. I want to show you and me today as we look at these verses two uh, reasons or ways that we can live lives uh, unashamed of the gospel. And we're going to kind of work our way backwards in this text. We're going to start at the very end, verses 16 and 17. And, and here's the first thing I want us to see. We can live unashamed of the gospel when we receive the gospel's power to save forever. Receive the gospel's power to save forever. It, living in a life not ashamed starts with never forgetting how good the good news of the gospel is. See, I've told you before, I'll keep telling you, this word gospel simply means good news. It wasn't a religious word in Paul's day. It was just a word that people used. It just meant good news. And the gospel is the best news. The gospel is God's power to save and to save forever. Listen again to verse 16, which actually I want to put before you today as our first memory verse. I told you when we started, uh, we were going to be challenging each other to memorize some verses. I'm going to start right here with verse 16. If you want to uh, add, uh, add the challenge, you know, kind of take it up a notch, you could do verse 17 as well. Now, we're going to talk more about verse 17 uh, next week, too, if you'll be back for that. But here's verse 16. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For... And this word in Greek, for, it literally just kind of means because. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I want to point out two things we need to see right away. And the first is this, the gospel is true. The gospel is, tr is truth. Uh, the gospel is not a philosophy. It is a fact that is grounded in history. The gospel is that a real historical person named Jesus of Nazareth, he lived and he died and he rose again. See, the gospel is not opinion. It's not advice. The gospel is news. It is an objective announcement of what God has done in his son Jesus. And the gospel is based on facts and events that were verified by eyewitnesses. And so therefore, because it's true, it's something we can trust and not be ashamed of. It's true. It, it really happened. Now, we're, we're not going to spend time today talking about the evidence for what I've just said. But I just want to tell you that evidence is really strong. And if, if you want to dig into it, send me an email. I'll give you some resources you can check out for yourself. The gospel is true. But secondly, the gospel is also power. Notice, Paul here does not say that the gospel contains the power of God or that the gospel channels 
the power of God. He says the gospel itself is the power of God. I want you to think about this. The gospel is the one thing in the New Testament other than Jesus, other than Jesus himself, that is called the power of God. It's God's power. The gospel is God's power to create, to redeem, to to heal, to bring back from the dead. The gospel doesn't really give you so much instruction on how to change. The gospel is itself the power to change. The gospel changes you. See, this gospel that Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, became a man and lived a perfect sinless life and then died in our place on the cross and then rose again from the dead three days later so that all who believe in him might be saved. That gospel is power. And if it's changed your life, you know it's power, right? The gospel is power, therefore we should not be ashamed. The gospel's power changes everything. I want to kind of give you a little bit of a sneak preview to illustrate what I'm saying because what I have just told you, we're going to see all through Romans time and time again. So let me kind of give you like a little preview of coming attractions, okay? And, and explain something really important. In Romans 3, we see that the gospel has the power to save us from the penalty of sin. In other words, that the gospel is the only thing that can deal with our guilt. Here's one thing I know. In this room right now, there is more than one person who is right now, in this moment, weighed down with guilt. You have done something, you have said something, you have thought something, And maybe we've done all those things more than once. Maybe you've done all these things for a very long time and you feel so guilty. You feel so very, very guilty. All of us, whether we're weighed down in this moment or not, all of us struggle with guilt at times, right? I mean, if you you want to say you've never felt guilt, well, you're probably either a psychopath or a serial killer. But hey, we're glad you're here. Um, No perfect people allowed, right? But the truth is, we all know it. We've all done things we we feel guilty about. But what I want to say right now is guilt is not simply a feeling. Guilt is a fact. You feel guilty generally because you are guilty. You, You have done something that has led to this sense of guilt. And let's just be honest with ourselves, right? We we have all not just broken God's standards, we have all broken our own standards. I mean, how many of us feel guilty about the stuff that we've done that we didn't really want to do that was, we would say, that's not even me. I don't want to be that person. I shouldn't have done that. And, and it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Have you ever thought about this? We can't even keep our own rules, right? And we have certainly not kept God's. Romans 3.23, and we're going to get there. It's going to be a couple of months or so. Just let you know ahead of time, that's going to be another one of our verses to memorize. So if you want to get ahead, you can do that. But Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we don't just have feelings of guilt. We are objectively uh, guilty. We have the fact of guilt hanging over our heads. Because of that guilt, we are under the judgment of God, and it is only the power of the gospel that can rescue us from that. It is only the power of the gospel that can set us free from our feelings of guilt and shame. Nothing else will. See, the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus came, the sinless one, to bear our sins for us, to take our place on the cross, to pay the penalty that we deserve, to take on our guilt and shame, to actually die so that we can be forgiven. And it is through faith in him that we are justified. That means declared righteous before God, uh, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I had always obeyed. That's the righteousness of God that Paul's actually talking about in verse 17, and, and that is actually ours in the gospel. And what I am saying to you today is there is nothing else, nothing else that has the power to rid you of your guilt, to free you from the condemnation that is in your heart, that you feel every day, nothing else but Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the gospel. And you can try all you want. And you can work really, really hard. You can spend your life doing good works, but how much is enough? How much is enough? I mean, how do you know when you've done enough? How do you know when you've finally you know, done enough good works to cover up all of, uh, of your bad works? And, and does it even really work that way? How do you know? Well, the Bible says, no, it doesn't work that way. The Bible says you have no hope of dealing with your guilt and shame and condemnation except in the fact that God, in his grace and mercy, sent Jesus to deal with it for you. The gospel is power to save you from the penalty of your sin. And that's good news, right? Anybody want to say amen right now? The gospel is also the very power that saves us from the power of sin, not just the penalty. Now, we're going to see farther on into Romans, this is actually going to be in Romans 6 and 7, that sin is not just something we do. It's actually this power within us that, that we're not just sinners because we sin. We sin because there is something inside of us called sin. We are sinners. That is our nature apart from Christ. And Paul's going to say in those chapters, there's, there's this thing that happens, the good I want to do, I find that I'm not doing, and the things that I hate, I find myself actually doing, and it's sin living in me. Anybody know what he's talking about? Really good intentions, really bad follow-through. Paul is going to speak later on uh, in Romans about sin as a power, about sin as a master, how, how sin has dominion over us until someone stronger than sin comes and sets us free. See, this is good news. 
And we've all been there. We've all felt trapped. We've all wondered, why can't I stop doing what I don't want to do? How come I keep doing this over and over again? Why do I keep hurting other people? Why do I keep hurting myself? Only the gospel sets you free from the power of sin. See, the gospel sets us free not only from the penalty of sin, it rescues us from the power of sin, so now we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to Jesus. Remember what Paul said, first verse, first thing he said about himself, I'm a slave, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And when we are rescued by the gospel, this gospel of power, we are under his good rule and reign, and he is our new master. It's only the gospel that sets us free from the power of sin. And then you go to Romans 8, and Romans 8 is going to show us that the gospel has the power to save us from the presence of sin. This may be hard to imagine, but one day, one day, because of the gospel, if we are in Christ, we will be completely sin-free. My mouth, will not say those words that wound anymore. My hands won't hurt someone that I love anymore. My eyes won't look with lust anymore. No more sin. No more ever again. Are you looking forward to that? See, this is what the gospel does This is the power of the gospel. It saves us, and not only today, it saves us forever. There are actually three big theological terms for each of these three things I've talked about. We'll be coming back to those, but I want you to see them now. When Paul talks about sin's penalty that we're saved from, that's that's the term called justification. We're justified when we are saved. We're made righteous before God. And then sin's power that I'm being saved from, this happens day by day as we live for God, with God. That's sanctification. And then the one day, sin's presence all gone. That's called glorification. You're going to have a perfect body, a a new perfect mind and heart. It's just going to be like Jesus. I'll finally be free from all of the things I hate about myself. I'll finally be free from, from all the hateful things that I find myself sometimes doing. I'll finally, finally be healed of all the hateful things that have been done to me. I'll be glorified, completely free from the very presence of sin. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? The gospel is is God's answer to our deepest needs that we can be forgiven, that we can be free of guilt and of shame, that we can be free from the bondage of sin, that we can even be set free from the fear of death, that we can know, that we can really know that we're actually loved, like like Paul says we are in verse 7, those who are loved by God, that we have that identity. We're God's children, accepted forever. All of that is ours in the gospel. And see, Paul is writing about that because Paul knows that in his own life, and Paul has seen that in so many other people's lives, how the gospel works in people's lives, how it sets people free, and how it changes everything about them. I mean, just think of some of the things that Paul saw. I mean, he wasn't just making stuff up. This is not some philosophy or, you know, that he's teaching. This is a power that he's proclaiming. He had seen people healed. He had seen people set free from dark spiritual forces. He had seen people raised from the dead. He had seen lives completely transformed. 
I'm gonna give you just one little picture of this. It's such a beautiful picture. It's in the, the book of Acts chapter 16 where Paul goes into the city of Philippi and he starts preaching the gospel and he, he finds this group of women who are praying uh, by a riverside and they don't know the gospel, but they've read and heard some things of God. They're spiritual seekers and he, he tells them about Jesus and one of, one of the women whose name is Lydia, who's there is this very wealthy, very successful businesswoman. She's spiritually hungry and Paul shares the story of Jesus with her. In Acts 16, 14, it says that God opens her heart to receive his message and she receives the forgiveness of sin and becomes a new person and she uses her home as a base for this church, this new church in Philippi. And then the chapter keeps going and we see a second convert uh, here in Philippi and it's like the total opposite. It's this young girl who's basically... A, a trafficking victim. She's, she's a slave now and she's possessed by this demon that enables her to tell the future which makes money for her owners. And Paul casts the demon out of her, sets her free, changes her whole life and now we have two members of this new church in Philippi. Two members, and think about this, a wealthy woman at the top of the socioeconomic ladder, a former demon-possessed slave. She's at the bottom. It's just this awesome church that's starting up I'm in Philippi. Well, the story keeps going, and the, the owners of this slave girl were furious because Paul had taken away their source of income, and so they got him arrested and beaten and thrown in prison, and, and then God sends an earthquake to set all these prisoners free, and the jailer's about to take his life, but Paul stops him and preaches the gospel to him, and this jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and the jailer's saved, he and his household, he's the third member of this church, and just think about this. We have this wealthy person. We have this very poor person. And now we have this very violent person, works for the government. You know, all these people coming together, you know, their family in Jesus, they're a church. See, that's the power of the gospel, to take people with all kinds of pasts, all kinds of presents, <laughs> their brokenness and anger and heartbreak and just darkness and set them free from all of it and bring them together as a family in Jesus. Paul has seen this time and time again. See, this is the gospel. This is the power of the gospel, the message and the mercy of Jesus delivering and transforming people's lives, changing households, transforming cities, reaching nations. The gospel is power. It is power, it's good news. And when we believe that, we don't have to be ashamed. Now, we're gonna actually talk more about what it means to know the righteousness of God next week. And, and I'm just telling you, it's so very good. But you wanna be here as we, we talk about what's coming next. So that's the first reason. Here's the second reason that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel is that we can apply the gospel's power to live today. So in other words, the gospel doesn't just save us from our past and save us for our future. The gospel gives us power to live today. Do you understand this? Christians still need the gospel. I don't know if you thought about it like this, but Christians need the gospel 
And we should apply the gospel. And when we do that, apply the gospel each day in its power, we will not be ashamed. Now, if you go back and kind of look over verses 8 through 15, uh, you, you just see that Paul loves this church in Rome. And I told you before, he's never been there. And he says, I'm praying for you all the time. And he says, I'm eager to get there. And this is what I want you to see again. Did you notice when I read it? He says, because I want to preach the gospel to you. So he's saying... I want to preach the gospel to Christians. I want to preach the gospel to Christ's followers. They already know Jesus. Why? Because the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers too. And if you've never heard that, it's going to change your life. The gospel is for unbelievers, but it's also for us who know Jesus. Do you understand? And this is where we're headed. The gospel not only saves us, it changes us. We, we need the gospel every day. The more we understand the gospel and work out its ramifications in our life, the more it transforms us. I want you to think with me for a couple of moments about your motivations for how and, and why you live your life. I'll give you some different real life scenarios. If you're a follower of Christ and someone wrongs you, just want to check real quick. Who here has been hurt, offended, wounded in some way, large or small this week? Just let me see. Raise your hand. Um, you know, somebody has done something to you you wish they hadn't done. It's just a very common thing. It happens, you know, probably more days than not. So what do you do? How do you respond? Someone wounds you. Someone wrongs you. The Bible tells you don't wrong them back. The Bible says forgive. How do you do that? Where do you get the power for that? Do, do you just like, some of you, you white knuckle it, right? Grit your teeth. Pay the dentist a lot of money after you do that because you're destroying your dental work, right? <laughs> the Bible says, no, we forgive when people wrong us. Why? Because God has forgiven us. That's the gospel. If God can forgive the infinite sin I've committed against him, I can forgive whatever sins have been committed against me. When I know the gospel, it empowers me to forgive. How about this? And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands this time. What if you sin? See, if I sin, and like I talked about a few moments ago, I'm kind of wallowing in guilt and shame, how do I deal with that? Answer is go back to the gospel. The gospel that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, those who are his. Why? Because he lives forever to intercede for them. That's the promise of God's word. You see, friends, the gospel is that Jesus died for my sin, even that one I just committed last night. It is the gospel that frees me from wallowing in my own failure. Maybe you're here and recently you lost your job and you're afraid. So how do you deal with that? Do you just tell yourself, you know, like, like it says on Oprah, you know, just tell yourself how good you are. Just say, I'm enough. But how many times do I have to say I'm enough before it's enough? Is that what you do? Is that how you deal with the fear of not knowing how you're going to provide for, for your family? No. You say, you go to the gospel. You say, if God did not spare his own son, will he not freely along with Jesus give me everything I need? I don't have to be afraid. The gospel tells me that. Let's kind of widen the lens of this for just a moment. 
I don't need to tell you that our gospel, I mean, our culture is uh, gripped today by racial issues. We, we cannot seem to deal with them. We cannot seem to find a social reconciliation. And if you study the Bible, you see the gospel is all about reconciling people to God and therefore reconciling people to one another. And in fact, I wanna point something out to you that'll help you as you read Romans. Romans was written out of a similar context. And if you pay attention to this and you know, you're gonna begin to see so much in Romans is gonna start making sense to you. Now, I just said, Paul, you know this, Paul didn't know the Roman believers. They didn't know him, but he knows something about them. He knows that there is ethnic tension in their churches in Rome. Now, we don't know, again, how the church of Rome got started. Paul didn't start it. Most likely, Jewish people from Rome were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they saw the Holy Spirit come down. Uh, they, they saw the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work as the church was born, and they were converted. They, they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and then they, they went back to Rome, and they started telling people about Jesus. They would have started with their own Jewish friends and family in Rome, but they also told people who were Gentiles. And so you begin to have this church that's made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, we know this from history. There's a Roman historian named Suetonius who tells us that in AD 49, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Why? Because they were rioting they were rioting all the time, Suetonius says, over someone named Crestus. And it's pretty easy to deduce from that that Jews and Christians were fighting about this Messiah named Jesus, Jesus the Christ. Now, what that meant for the Roman churches were all these Jewish believers who probably had been the leaders in the churches, they all had to leave. And it was just Gentile Christians in the church. And when they left, the Gentile Christians had to kind of take ownership and take leader, leadership. But then five years later, AD 54, Claudius dies. And so the Jews get to return back to Rome. But now the Jewish Christians come back to churches that are led by Gentiles who because of their Gentile culture tend to look at things differently and they all struggle to kind of get along in the churches. It is why Paul will talk about, about Gentile style sin in the second half of Romans 1. It's why Paul will talk about Jewish style sin in Romans 2. It's why Paul is going to defend himself from charges that he has abandoned God's law in Romans 3. It's why he's going to talk about the place of Jews and Gentiles in God's plan for history in Romans 9 through 11. And it's why he's going to talk in Romans 14 about whether you should eat meat or not, whether you should worship on certain days or not. He's going to talk about people that are weaker and stronger in their faith and not passing judgment on one another. He's dealing in all of these things with this Jewish Gentile tension and conflict. And Paul keeps saying to them, as you're going to see, the way you resolve all of these things, it's the gospel. The gospel teaches us how to live. You say, well, that's not a problem for me. How about this one? Are you desperate for someone's approval? How do you deal with that? Do you just tell yourself, 
Your opinion is the only one that matters. That's what the culture says. Just, you, you are enough. You just tell yourself your opinion matters. How come you still care? That doesn't work, does it? No, you apply the gospel. You say to yourself when you struggle for approval, you say, God has already spoken the greatest verdict over my life that could ever be spoken. God has declared me in Jesus righteous in his sight. He has called me his beloved. That's the only approval I need, the gospel. And that means I can say like Paul, it doesn't really matter what you think about me in the end. I, I, I like to have your approval because I love you, but if you won't give it to me, I have God's approval and I will live with that. It's the gospel. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. See, the Bible says the model for husband and wife relationships is the bond that Jesus has with his church. It's the gospel. What about generosity? I, I know nobody really wants to hear about that, you know, I mean, because I still kind of have a perfect 35-plus-year record of no one ever asked me to preach more sermons on giving. It just hasn't happened so far. I predict it probably won't happen. But why are we to be generous? The Bible talks about it quite a lot. Well, the answer is the gospel, because God in his mercy was generous to us, that Jesus, though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. If God has been generous to me, then I should be generous in the way I live. And then, you know, when we stand on the doorstep of death one day, and we all will, it is only the gospel that fills you from hope, that if God raised Jesus from the dead. He will raise me from the dead also. It is the gospel. Do you see from beginning to end our entire lives, the gospel answers the biggest questions, the deepest pains, the most difficult challenges we have. Do not think the gospel is just for unbelievers. We need the gospel as Christ followers too. In fact, I want you to say this. I need the gospel. Will you say that? I need the gospel. And Romans is going to give it to us as we, we keep studying it today. And you know, when we're living out the gospel and when we're seeing how good it is for us, it's hard to be, un, to be ashamed, right? We, we, live, we learn to live without shame. I, I want you to see something that Paul says in verse 14. He says, he says the gospel is so good, I, I cannot be ashamed of it. In fact, he says, the gospel is so good, it puts me under obligation. Look at verse 14. He says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And when he says Greeks and barbarians, what he's really saying is the whole Gentile world. Literally, he's saying, I'm a debtor. I owe a debt to the whole Gentile world. I'm indebted to preach the gospel to Gentiles in a way that they will hear it. Have you ever read this and thought, well, what does this mean, I'm a debtor? I mean, I don't quite get, why is Paul, why does he owe them a debt? Just think about this. There are actually two ways, two ways that you can owe a debt. First is the way you think of naturally, like you borrowed money from someone, so you owe them, right? You know, it's like your mortgage. Uh, you owe that. You borrow the money, you got to pay it back. But a second way that you might be indebted to someone is when someone gives you money that you're supposed to give 
to someone else. See, now you owe that to that person, right? Like, for example, if you gave Pastor Chris $1,000 and you said, I want you to give that to Pastor Mike, number one, I'm never seeing that money. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, you need to know that I'm never gonna see it. But, but Chris would be indebted to me, right? He'd be obligated to me because something was given to him that was meant to be given to me. He owes that to me. That's what Paul means here. When God gives us the knowledge of the gospel and when God brings us into the joys of the gospel, he does it because he intends us to share it with other people. We owe others the life and joy we've received in the gospel. Somebody should say amen real loud right now. Paul says, I'm obligated to share this gospel. There's this fascinating story in the Old Testament. It's actually in the second book of Kings. It's in chapter seven. You can read it for yourself later on today. Uh, Syria has besieged Samaria. Samaria is the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Everyone inside the besieged city of Samaria is starving. There is death and there is desperation all around them. There's some horrible things happening there. I'm not gonna go into it, but you can check it out for yourself. Horrible things so people can just stay alive. And right outside the city walls are four lepers, Because they're unclean, they're not allowed in the city. Because they're unclean, the Assyrians don't want anything to do with them. They're just kind of there in no man's land. And one day, it's so bad, these lepers look around and say, we're gonna die. Why don't we just go to the Assyrian camp and see if they'll at least give us some food. Either they'll kill us or we're just gonna die of starvation. It's worth a shot. And so they walk to the the Assyrian camp And when they get there, they find that it has been abandoned. God has miraculously made it sound like an army was coming and the Syrians fled and the the tents are just filled with food and gold and silver and clothing. The lepers have it all to themselves and they're just going from tent to tent. They're eating and they're, they're drinking and they're stuffing money in their pockets and they're putting clothes on, trying on different kinds of clothes and then all of a sudden it dawns on them. Here's what 2 Kings 7, verse 9 says. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. This is a day of good news. And sometimes we're ashamed and we're keeping it to ourselves while people all around us are starving and they're dying. And we're enjoying all of this bounty, all of this goodness. It's not right. We have good news. We owe a debt. We have to tell others. We have an obligation. So Southlands, let's not hesitate. Let's not procrastinate. If we don't share this good news, people will die. And I imagine um, those lepers must have thought, well, what if they don't believe us when we go back? What if they think we're, we're, we're crazy? The Syrians left. They left all their stuff. What if people say, you lepers are crazy. You've lost more than like a toe or an ear. You've lost your mind. 
What if they don't believe us? Here's the point. When you have news this good, this good, you do not worry about what other people will think. When you have news this good, the possibility of people believing this gospel weighs so much more in our hearts than the possibility that they might laugh at us or make fun of us or look down on us. So we will not be ashamed of the gospel. It's a day of good news. Today is the day of salvation. We cannot keep this to ourselves. Jesus died for us. He's forgiven us our sin. He has set us free. He has given us hope. We have the gift of eternal life. So let's share the good news. Amen? Amen? It's good news. It's the gospel of God. And we're all just starving lepers who've been blessed with great grace and great mercy. How can we not share that good news without shame? Would you bow your heads as we pray? The gospel is God's power, Paul says. It can change anyone. It can change you. But Paul says it's God's power to everyone who believes. And so if you have never received this good news of Jesus' death for you, I just want to ask you, will you believe? Will you trust? Will you turn from your sin in repentance? Will you turn to Jesus in faith? God, we we thank you for this gospel that has come to even us today. What a privilege, what, what grace and mercy and goodness. Lord, give us the grace to believe it, to hold fast to it, Lord, to, to be unashamed of it and to share it with others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and God's people together say, amen. We're going to come.